invite you to turn in your Bible with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 10, Luke 10, and we're going to read verses 38 through 42. While you're turning there, just want to invite you to uh, encourage you strongly to join us this evening. This morning what we're going to see is um, Jesus' prescription for anxious hearts. Tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 16, one of the most beautiful psalms in the uh, Psalter. Where in Psalm 16, we see David applying exactly what we're talking about. We see a, a Christian uh, applying the truth of God in a difficult circumstance and finding great joy in that. It's amazing to me how these two sermons uh, just came together uh, this week. And so I really want to encourage you tonight, come on out and do exactly what Jesus calls us to do, which is to feed on his word, the one thing necessary for our life. Let's turn then to Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Let's give our attention to the word of the Lord. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Let's ask the Lord's blessing in this word. Father in heaven, I thank you that your Holy Spirit is given to illuminate your word, that we might understand it and receive spiritual nourishment from it. And so, Lord, whatever um, obstacles and barriers there are in our heart this morning, in our mind, uh, to receiving the word of God, Lord, remove those things, that we might hear the voice of our Savior speaking to us loud and clear. And that we might hear him, hearing him, then we might follow him. Your sheep know your voice. Oh, Lord, may your sheep recognize it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message, once again, is not what you find in your bulletin. Instead, it's heart trouble. Heart trouble. Heart trouble is a sneaky thing. Um, we all know stories of people who were the paradigm of health, uh, maybe in their youth, uh, maybe exercised a great deal, and yet who suddenly, unexpectedly had a heart attack, sometimes fatal. A spiritual heart trouble can be equally sneaky and equally hard to discern and equally as deadly. The story we have this morning is a story that we all have heard before, and I want to just encourage you not to sort of put your mind into a cruise mode, uh, thinking that uh, you've heard this before. I just want to encourage you that uh, the Holy Spirit put this in the Scriptures for you today. Uh, every one of us this morning uh, came into this morning, this building, uh, after a week where we have experienced anxious and troubled hearts. And we've acted out of that anxiety and out of that heart trouble in unhelpful, um, disobedient, harmful ways. And, and so Jesus has something to say to all of us this morning. Uh, this, is, this story is only in Luke's gospel, and Luke puts it in a context of following Jesus. That's what we've been talking about the last several chapters, lessons of discipleship. And, and here we have two good women, two devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. They love Jesus. Jesus loves them. They're committed to his cause. 
but one of them has heart trouble. This morning's message uh, then might become a little bit uncomfortable. There's an old saying when a sermon gets a little too convicting uh, that the preacher has left off preaching and gone to meddling. And uh, this morning, Jesus intends to meddle. He's gone to meddling, no doubt about it, because he's gonna, he wants to speak um, right into the middle of the life as you live it in your day-to-day routines. He's going to address Martha in the middle of a moment of self-righteous indignation and self-justified anger, and Jesus is going to expose her and then show her the cure. And he wants to do the same for us this morning. We're going to look first at Martha's burden. As we um, just quietly, maybe we can think of ourselves stepping into a side door, and um, we're going to watch a scene unfold here. As uh, we follow Jesus into a little town, Bethany, just about three miles outside of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is uh, on his way to Jerusalem with his disciples. And they come to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And so when we first meet Martha, what is she doing? She's happily, warmly inviting Jesus into her home. Uh, She lives there with her uh, sister and her brother, Uh, Apparently, Jesus had a special relationship with his family. It seems like they are all single and so enjoy just spending time together, eating meals together. Jesus undoubtedly spent some evenings uh, sleeping there in in the home. It was a haven for him, a place of rest, a place of a wonderful human friendship and companionship. But it's important that we see Martha embracing gladly Jesus and the disciples and welcoming them. Because when we hear the story of Mary and Martha, Martha's the villain. Martha's the bad person. Martha's the example of how not to be and what not to do. And and while so much of that is true, Martha's not a villain. She's She's a wonderful, warm, gracious, willing hostess. You would love Martha. She's one of those, those women, it doesn't matter sort of what you throw at them in terms of, hey, we're here. Um, wonderful, welcome, come on in. She's, she has the gift of hospitality in that way. Remember, Jesus' disciples are probably with him, and they don't, you know, you, you don't have sort of call-ahead seating. Uh, they, they didn't get a text, right? She didn't get a text an hour before. Hey, we're making our way through, wondered if we could stop for some lunch. They just show up at the door. Thirteen men, and she happily welcomes them in, cheerfully sets about preparing a meal. She's delighted to have Jesus and his disciples there, and she springs into action. There's a meal to be made. A meal was a very, very important part of showing hospitality in those days, and so there's things that have to be done. It has to be done. There's bread that needs to be baked, vegetables to be cut, meat to be broiled or however it's prepared. There's dishes to be set out. And you can just see her mind spinning with the details of what needs to happen. She's, she's planning it as she gets to work. Martha's terrific. You would love Martha. But something begins to go sour. The scene is that Jesus and his disciples come in, they take a seat. Maybe uh, there wouldn't really be a parlor, but there's probably an area where guests would gather. Maybe it's in a courtyard um, through an open door. Jesus and his disciples are there, and Jesus begins to teach. 
And that begins to present a bit of a problem because Martha wants to listen to Jesus. Notice she's distracted with much serving. Distracted from what? Well, distracted from what she really wants to do, which is she wants to listen to Jesus. She loves Jesus. She's never heard anyone like Jesus. Something about the, what Jesus says and the way he talks just nourishes her soul. And so when Jesus is there, she's, she wants to hear him talk. She wants to hear him speak. And so she's trying to do that. She's trying to listen to Jesus and prepare a meal at the same time. Two things that she enjoys doing. But the, but the one, the, the duties of a, being a hostess, it, it's conflicting with her real heart desire to listen to Jesus. So I was thinking about this. I, I think nursery attendants must feel this way sometimes, right? Where it's, oh, you know, you don't mind helping out. It's a, it's, a, it's a joy to serve. Joy might be a little strong, but you're willing to, you're willing to serve and bless other people so they can come and, and pay attention. But, but there are times when, I, I'm sure of it, when you're in the nursery and you're thinking, my heart could really use worship this morning. And maybe it's a special service. And it's, it's hard to, to be set apart with God's little covenant children and, and miss this. As much as you might enjoy serving, if you love the Lord and, and you have a hunger for, for worship and for the word, it's, a, it's, it's hard to miss that. So thank your nursery attendant when you uh, pick up your child this morning. They're doing a real service. But that's where, Mar- that's where Martha is. There's... That's the tension she feels. So, so she's trying to listen to Jesus. She's trying to get the meal ready, and, and it's difficult. And what does she notice? She notices Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, enjoying the teaching of Jesus, and doing absolutely nothing to help with the meal. Now, some of you are starting to feel the hair go up on the back of your neck. Right? You can... This is a situation that's tailor-made to make a body mad, to make your just, I mean, it's not hard to imagine what's running through Martha's mind. Mary knows what needs to be done. It's not rocket science. Meals don't just magically appear. You can't call Jimmy John's. There's work that has to be done, and it's important work. It's essential work. This is, this is, providing hospitality for Jesus. Mary knows what needs to be done. And it's Mary's home as much as Martha's home. The responsibility is just as much Mary's as it is Martha. But Mary clearly doesn't care. I mean, that's just patently obvious. She does not care what needs to be done. She does not care that Martha is frantically trying to get a meal ready. She doesn't care that Martha would like to be in there sitting at the feet of Jesus too. So what gives Mary the right, you see, to abandon her duties? What gives Mary the right to assume it's perfectly okay to leave Martha do all the work? You see, it's it's the injustice that got to her. It's it's the injustice of it. It's just not not right. It's not not fair. Man, I tell you, I I get worked up just thinking about it. (laughs) You've been here, and you can... You can delineate clearly the nature of the injustice. In fact, you're running the injustice through your mind as as you're slamming pots or pans or as you're uh, angrily doing the duty that you're supposed to be doing. 
But you see what, what gets her maybe even more? Nobody seems to notice. <laughs> it's like, here's this gross injustice being played out right in front of everyone's eyes, and nobody notices. Why doesn't somebody nudge, you know, little Mary sweet and mild and say, why don't you get yourself into the kitchen? But nobody does. They're all just in there listening to Jesus, laughing if he says something funny, nodding when he says something true. They're just feeding their souls, utterly oblivious to the injustice being done to Martha. And so you just expect, right? I mean, it builds and it builds. You've been here where you're thinking to yourself, it's not a big deal. I can do this. It, it's okay. But it just builds, it builds, it builds, and finally something's going to come out. And it does. And it's usually, usually in, in a circumstance like this, uh, when it does finally boil o- o- over, there's just this really awkward, wow, where did that come from? And so you can imagine, uh, Jesus is teaching, the disciples are listening, Mary is sitting there sweetly at his feet, and finally, suddenly, out of nowhere, Martha, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? It had to be a little awkward. You see, it's not a question. It's not a question. It's a rebuke. Martha, a woman, is rebuking Jesus, the teacher, the rabbi, the master, for failing publicly in her home. (laughs) Now, why is she so upset with Jesus? Why doesn't she rebuke Mary? Mary, hello, work to be done, or just right, some way, pointing out, uh, getting Mary's attention, getting, she doesn't do that. She rebukes Jesus. Why Jesus? Because it's Jesus' apparent lack of concern that's most painful to her. She, she didn't expect this of Jesus. She's grieved by his apparent willingness to allow Mary to sit right there in front of him. It's not that he doesn't see her. She's right there. And he doesn't say anything. Lord, don't you care? See, that's the question. I mean, it it would have been one thing if Jesus at least would have noticed what Mary wasn't doing and what Martha was doing. I mean, if Jesus could have just said something, uh, could we just thank Martha for a moment for, for how hard she's working? I mean, that wouldn't have been the perfect solution, but it would have been something, at least to be acknowledged. But nothing like that happened. So she's just ignored, and it hurt. And there's no way she could talk herself out of it. If it had just been a group of men, she probably could have just said, well, you know, let them do their thing, and if Mary wants to be part of that, that's fine. I'll do this. But it's not just a group of men. It's Jesus, and she wants to hear Jesus, and and Jesus is oblivious to the injustice. That's what makes it hurt. Not only does Mary not care, Jesus doesn't care. You see, isn't that so often the sorrow that deepens the pain of our circumstances? It's, it's, 
It's hard enough to suffer the sorrows of a disease or the daily injustices you might face or difficult trials of one sort or another. We experience all the hard things that are common to men and women in this broken world. But a believer, you see, often has the added sorrow of experiencing that trial, that injustice, that disease with Jesus' apparent lack of concern. Don't you care is often precisely the question deep in our heart, even if we don't dare to ask it, and it is often the, then the deepest part of the pain. I could handle this if Jesus would just acknowledge it. If I just knew that he cared. Why doesn't God do something? You see, we had believed that he would do something. We we feel like he should do something, and his lack of doing something is painful. It hurts. It feels like he doesn't care. And no matter how much we talk to ourselves about the sovereignty of God or, or all things working together for good, it just hurts. And that's why she rebukes Jesus. Her heart is sore. She'd never expected this. She'd invited Jesus and the disciples into the home, and she was, she was happy to do it. But she had not expected to be left on the outside, left alone to work, left to do all the serving while everybody else gets to enjoy Jesus, and Jesus doesn't even notice. It wasn't right, it wasn't fair, and it hurt. And so she follows the rebuke with a command. Tell her then to help me. Now, it's generally not a good practice to order the maker of the universe <laughs> to do stuff, right? I, I, I can imagine in heaven someday sitting down and having a good laugh with Martha about this one. But you see, it's very normal, isn't it? It's very, very normal. We're generally more subtle about ordering Jesus around. Our ordering God around often takes the subtler form of grumbling and complaining. But the hard fact is, you see, that we do feel comfortable doing just what she did, letting God know what he ought to be doing, how he should be ordering our affairs, pointing out areas where he's failing to meet our expectation. And oftentimes we do it simply by justifying our lack of love, our lack of joy, our lack of peace. If God wants me to change my behavior, then maybe he could change some circumstances. And it feels perfectly justifiable. It's an awful thing to do, awful thing to do. But we do it just as easily and thoughtlessly as Martha. And we have to just acknowledge that if this world were ordered by simple justice, this is the part in the story where the ground would open up beneath Martha's feet and she would drop and be swallowed alive. She's rebuking and giving orders to the second person of the Trinity and saying to the one who gave up all the glory of heaven to come and give his life as a ransom for people who deserve nothing but hell, and she's charging him with not caring. You see, it's just, it's just rotten. She's telling the king of kings, the lord of lords, what he must do to satisfy her agenda. She's building, you see, a rival kingdom to the kingdom of God. A kingdom where she's lord, she's the determiner of what is right and just, and she gets to order people, even the son of God, to do what she believes ought to be done 
to get her way. It's, it's, just, it's not a little sin. It is a gross sin. If she would have pulled this stunt in front of one of the puny potentates of men, if she would have gone to ugly little Herod, who's the ruler over Judea, or tried this in front of the emperor of Rome, do you know what would have happened? Instant death. Instant death. But this world is not run by sinful, puny little potentates. It's run by the living God. It's God's world. And, and, in, and God's world, you see, does not operate according to pure and simple justice, at least not immediately. Our God is a God who delights to show mercy, who's rich in mercy. He overflows in compassion. He abounds in love. He lavishes kindness to the least deserving. And we see this beautiful, beneficent character of God in Jesus' response to Martha. Because instead of doing what he could have done and what simple justice would have required he do, he says, oh, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled by many things. It's, a, it's a good to stop here and look at what's happened. Look at the room. Look at the debris, the emotional wreckage all over the place and, and say, how in the world did we get here? How did such a good event and such good intentions end, end up in such a train wreck? Well, Jesus points to how we got here. Martha's anxious, troubled heart. She's anxious and troubled about many things. She's got, she's got to get the meal ready. She's got to get the bread on and the vegetables need to be cut. And she wants to hear Jesus and, and it's getting, the hour is getting on. And she's really troubled by Mary's failure. And it does, makes no sense to her that nobody notices. And it really wounds her that Jesus is not concerned. Just anxieties and troubles and issues. It's just all over the place, full of it. And see, if you were to ask Martha, Martha, what happened? She would have said, well, do you see Mary? Do you see, you see what she's doing? Do you see what she's not doing? Do you notice the absolute disregard that every man in that room has for what I'm going through? You see, that's what she would have pointed to. Jesus says, no, the, the problem is not the circumstances. The problem is the mess in your own heart. You have an anxious, troubled heart. There's no peace inside. Now, again, we all know what that's like. In fact, maybe you've done that recently. You've, you've, you've set out to do something good for someone, uh, uh, the best of intentions. You, you wanted to show a kindness. Maybe you decided to have a special evening with your spouse, and from the get-go, it just didn't quite grow right, and at the end of it, you wondered why you even made the attempt, and it seemed like just good money thrown down, right? Oh, boy, we could have just stayed, home, you know, stayed at home, saved ourselves 50 bucks. How does it get there? You sign up to do some volunteer duty at church, and you generally desire to do it. You want to do it. You're glad to do it. But in the, in the midst of doing it, it just feels like you're doing it alone. It's, it, nobody notices. You never get a thank you. And you get resentful. You make decisions. I'm not doing this again. And maybe even lash out at somebody. You see, it's, it's all the same thing. What turns great intentions into miserable experiences is heart trouble. That's where Jesus points. Mary, Martha, Martha, you're, you're anxious and troubled about so many things. And she would have said, yeah. But one thing is necessary. 
You see, this is such a lesson for us as disciples of Jesus Christ. We, we tend to think of discipleship as involving big things and big decisions and, and um, important things. Like, what are you going to do for, your, for, for a career and, and uh, being holy, uh, putting away sin and standing for what's true and being a good wife and a good father and, and a good friend and a good child. And, and it, it's all these big categories. And Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you, you have to deal with right here. All those little assumptions that you so easily make and so quickly justify as perfectly okay. Remember James, James 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your desires, your epithumia, your, these, these, these strong things that you, you, you feel strongly, you want a certain thing, and it's a, it's a good thing. You just want a better marriage. You just want a better friendship. You just want obedient Kids, you, you just want understanding parents. You, you're not asking for the world. And James says, isn't, isn't that the problem? That's the problem. You have these passions that war within you. You want things. And you think it's, it's because the thing that you want is a good thing or a justifiable thing. You think that the, the anger and the frustration and the disappointment that spills out of that, it's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. You end up rebuking Jesus and ordering him around. It's not okay. The primary cause, I and mean, we just have to accept this by faith, the primary cause of the frustration, the anxiety, the anger, and the disappointment in your life is not what you think it is. It's not because of the circumstances of your life. It's because of the heart you carry into it. That's the problem. Martha had the best of intentions, and yet she got completely caught up in the whirlpool of indignation and ends up sinning profoundly against God because her heart was wrong. So what, what are we going to do? What's the cure? Well, Jesus tells us what the cure is. One thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. In Martha's mind, there were a thousand things that were necessary, things that had to happen, things that needed to get done. Pressing needs, real needs. We need to eat. Jesus says, no, one thing, just one thing, is essential for life. One, one thing takes precedence over everything else. No matter what is going on in your life, no matter what the circumstances might be, no matter how dire, no matter how painful, no matter how frustrating, how disappointing, one Thing, one thing is essential, necessary to the all the way down. One thing. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's it. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 15? You want to be a disciple? You want to bear fruit that pleases the Father? And if you're a disciple, that's exactly what you want? Well, you. One thing, you need to abide in Jesus. You need to abide in Jesus. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will bear much fruit. If you don't do that, if you live apart from me, apart from my word, you won't, you won't accomplish anything. You can do nothing. 
that is spiritually significant, that actually has the fruit that pleases God, apart from abiding in Jesus, abiding in Jesus' word. You see, listening to Jesus, paying attention to Jesus' word, taking it in, is the only antidote for an anxious, troubled heart. So when you're in the context, when you're in the circumstance, and some of you were there this morning, and you're trying to reason your way through it, it's not that big a deal. I, I can do this. Um, they didn't mean to. I mean, you can give a thousand, but that's not going to cut it. It's not, it's not going it's not to change your heart. Any unbeliever can do that. And some of them, many of them, could do it much better than you can. To have a changed heart, a glad heart, a thankful heart, a peaceful heart, you need Jesus. It's the only antidote. You need the word of Jesus. You need the gospel to to, to just sort of come down upon you again. The word of Christ, the truth of things as God declares them. It's the, most, it's the most essential thing. It's even more important than bread. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Gooding says this, Amid all of life's duties and necessities, there's one supreme necessity which must always be given priority and which, if circumstances compels us to choose, must be chosen to the exclusion of all others. That supreme necessity is to sit at the Lord's feet and listen to his word. It must be so. If there is a creator at all, and if that creator is prepared to visit with us and speak to us, then obviously it is our first duty as his creatures and ought to be our highest pleasure as his saints to sit at his feet and listen to what he says. It just, that's how it ought to be. If it's the word of Jesus, number one thing on the agenda. The one essential necessity of my life. It's the only cure for an anxious heart. Why? Because Jesus, you see, comes to us in his word. We're not just, we're not just talking about religious dogma. We're not just using religious jargon. Jesus says he meets with us in his word. If you, if you come to it with the eyes of faith, if you come to it willing to receive and hear God talk to you, if you, if you want to meet Jesus there, this is the place where Jesus promises, you see, to meet you. It's in his word. We meet Jesus there. Riken says Jesus is the perfect antidote for all the unattractive attitudes that poison our service. His gospel is the cure for our distraction as we're drawn into the beauty of his grace. Even this morning when you heard amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Didn't you just sense the peace coming to your, to your heart, to your soul? It says grace has brought us safe thus far. How did you get this far? It's all Grace. How are you going to make it home? It's just grace. Always grace. See, it's, it's the gospel we need to hear. His peace is the cure for our anxiety as we trust him in the worries of life. His love is the cure for self-pity as we forget ourselves, receive his love, and serve others for his sake. This is the good portion that God offers. Jesus himself in all of his grace. Jesus offers himself to us in his word. 
And so it's up to us then to choose that. Mary has chosen the good portion. Mary made a choice. Mary knew what was going on in the kitchen. Mary knew what needed to happen. But Mary made a choice, and Jesus says she made the right choice. Mary has chosen the good portion, the portion that's going to provide fruit and well up to everlasting life inside of her. You see, the end of the day, the question is, what person do you want to be? You want to be the person that's maybe noted for your accomplishments, noted for your abilities, noted for how busy you are, how much you get done, how devoted you are? Or do you want to be known as the person who abides in Jesus and somehow out of that there just wells up kindness and gentleness and love and self-control? A love for people, a heart for God, a purity that isn't just about external moral duties but flows out of a pure heart that treasures Jesus Christ. What, what, what do you want written on the tombstone? Great big accomplishments or someone who found Jesus to be all in all? You see, Jesus is there and Jesus then invites us and we have a decision to make. What does Jesus want you to know from this text? Let me wrap up with that. What does Jesus want you to know? He wants you to know there's no life apart from him. If you're not a Christian today, you are dead in your sin. You might scoff at that. You might laugh at that. But Jesus, the Son of God, speaks in his word. He wants you to know that apart from him, there is no life. If you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus, you are lost. You are dead in your sin. And there's a judgment day coming. Jesus wants you to know that. And you will have no power within you to produce a peaceful, calm heart in the midst of a world that's collapsing around us. Secondly, Jesus wants you to know that he's full of love and full of mercy and full of grace for people who come to him with their anxious hearts. Jesus speaks to you this morning the way he talked to Martha. He didn't rebuke her. He didn't slap her. He didn't say, Martha. He said, oh, Martha. Oh, Martha. It's the same way he, he's, he speaks to Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How oft I would have gathered you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Oh, Martha, Martha. Your heart is anxious. You're troubled by many things, Martha. Jesus speaks to you, you see, full of mercy, full of love, full of compassion. He knows where you live. He knows where your mind goes. He knows what your heart is doing. He understands. He doesn't slap you. He doesn't rebuke you invites you, calls you, come, there's, I'm offering you something. There's, there's one thing necessary. Come, feed on me. Come, receive my word. And then the choice is yours. It's going to look like, right, if we, if we listen to Jesus here, it's going to look like what, asking yourself, what's your relationship with this book like? When's the last time you just cracked its pages and sat down for a quiet 15 minutes or in half an hour and you just read about your God? What's your relationship like with this book? If it simply doesn't have a meaningful place in your life, you're missing the good portion. And you're not going to have any strength. I tell you, just this past week, I got, I got um, strong with somebody. Uh, I was angry in my heart, and I wounded that person. They graciously forgave me, but I want to look back and say, okay, what happened there? What happened was a lot of anxiety over some stupid thing because I had not been that just feeding my mind that day with the word of truth of God. I don't think you're much different. What's going to be a relationship to the word? 
What's going to be your relationship to it as you have your personal devotions, as you have your family devotions? What's going to be your relationship with it as, as the church worships together? Whatever else you're doing on a Sunday night, is it anything compared to this? Anything? Some of you have made a decision in your heart. I'm just not, if it's, <laughs> if that worship service happens after 12 noon, I ain't there. Okay. Okay. Mary chose the better portion. We're busy people. I understand that. Jesus understands that. And he calls us to account. There is a good portion to choose. Gooding says this, and I'll wrap up with this. Life's affairs will not automatically sort themselves into a true order of priorities. Your life isn't just going to suddenly wonderfully fall into place. Somebody won't come to you and say, um, now's your time for private devotions. I'll take care of the kids. You just go have your moment. That's not going to happen that way. If we do not consciously insist on making sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to his word our number one necessity. Notice not just our priority, our necessity. A thousand and one other things and duties, and I would add entertainments and pleasures, all claiming to be prior necessities, will tyrannize our time and energies and rob us of the good portion of the gospel. I've allowed myself to be robbed far too often of the good portion of the gospel. You've allowed the same thing. Let's confess it as sin. Let's listen to our Lord and make the one thing necessary the top priority. May God give the grace. Amen. Oh, Father, Father, we come in Jesus' name, and we confess, Lord, all the anxieties and the troubles and distractions and frustrations and impatience of our hearts where so often we do not look any different than our unbelieving neighbor. We go to church, but and they don't, but in the day-to-day -day details of life, we respond to hardships and heartaches and disappointments in the same way, and it's sin. And we've charged you with wrongdoing, and you so graciously have forgiven us. Lord Jesus, we live in a culture that is doing everything in its power to keep us from the one thing necessary. We have a whole, uh, an unholy trinity of evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil, doing everything in their power to keep us from the words of Jesus, to keep us from sitting at his feet, to keep us from receiving the life and the peace that only comes as we meet with Jesus. And we've been blind to it. We've gladly, willingly allowed our enemies to have their way. And so we can just confess it as sin. Father, I pray for every man, woman, and child here that we would hear your voice and your word. One thing, one thing is necessary, it's essential, non-negotiable to life to sit at the feet of Jesus. And may that one thing direct us in the choices we make with what we do with our time May that one thing motivate us as we trust your promise, that as we feed on your word and as it abides in us and, and we commune with you day by day, you will bring forth fruit more than we could have ever imagined that glorifies the Father.
And so, Lord, that's our prayer. That's our desire. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.